Hey gang, welcome to Geeking Out, the podcast for collectors. I'm your host, Jeff French. I go by ETH Frenchie on Twitter. I'm the creator of the BPX Collective. And every week, we're going to bring you in-depth discussions with the industry's top experts, covering everything from sports cards to comics to TCGs and beyond. So sit back, relax, and join us as we geek out. And let's take your collection to the next level. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Geeking Out. I am your host, Frenchy, Jeff French, and I've got my good friend today. Everyone knows him on Twitter and throughout our ecosystem is Alpha Trilogy. Alpha, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Uh, opposite. Thank you so much for, for coming on. So this is one where um, I've known you for a while, met you through our ecosystem uh, about two years ago, and... Just, I, I know a little bit about your background, and I know some really cool things that I want to geek out about here on the podcast. But before we get into some of that, maybe let's just start with a little bit of background. Maybe, maybe let's tell our listeners kind of who you are and and how you got into collecting, and then maybe what your transition over to, to Web three looked like along the way. Yeah, so um, my background from a business standpoint is definitely marketing, Web two, um, how quite a few, uh, companies that I've either founded or yeah, basically founded and the web two sphere, um, some of those companies that are founded as much as 20 years ago, still, you know, a majority or at least a 50% owner in, um, right before the internet, um, exploded back in the mid nineties, late nineties while I was in college. I was actually a buyer for a um, decorative arts company that I helped start. And I traveled throughout Europe buying um, decorative arts and not in a, not in a small way, in huge scale. So I think um, in like 98 or 99, uh, we imported 345 foot high cube containers of decorative arts that I bought myself handpicked piece by piece in Europe um, that year. So it got me addicted to the whole um, art scene. I bought enormous amounts of um, uh, artwork and then decorative art, like really high-end antiques and those type of things that then we sold to, um, we sold to decorators and interior designers throughout North America. And so during that process, I got addicted to certain things. I started looking at, you know, I'd find something and I'd keep it. And so, um, I'd say I started collecting when I was pretty young, um, at that scale in the, in the art world. That, that's, that actually, I actually did not realize that. So is there, a, is there a difference when you say a decorative art, is that, is that different than say fine art or it, it is fine art that you're just using it a hot for a decorator in a high end home or something? Is it? Like, um, is there a delineation there? Or? Well, decorative art, we've always referred to it as decorative art because most antiques um, and then a lot of um, a lot of newer artwork, we just call it decorative art. And so that's what we referred to it to. It didn't really have a lot to do with what the price of it was. And so there's definitely fine art mixed in with that. Um, but a lot of it is more, is more geared towards a decorator designer market. Gotcha. Well, and that's what I kind of uh, cut my teeth in, I guess, in a in a pretty dramatic way when I was really young. Yeah, for sure. That's a ton of experience in doing doing that. Um, any uh, any particular things during that era that you acquired personally that you still have that are kind of like your things that you're like super proud of? You show off when somebody comes over or something. Any any anything that jumps out at you there from that era? Um. Yeah, I, I, well, from a, like on a larger scale, I collected some furniture pieces that I still like have front and center, um, that are really, really unusual, really, um, uh, kind of things that blow people's mind, uh, if they're not really familiar with, uh, European decorative art at all. Um, some, I'm a black forest, uh, hunting cabinet from the 1700s that's just, like it's beautiful, so I have it in a in an uh, a den area where I play poker and stuff with my friends, and it's just really, really um, it's crazy because it's like all created by hand, and it's just wild. But um, I 
collected quite a bit of edged um, weaponry during that time. So yeah, I have some swords and some various uh, wed, um, edged weapons that are really cool that I collected during that time that I just pick up here or there. That's awesome. Any of it have like a, uh, I guess, how is the provenance on that type of stuff? Can you do a lot of it? Are you able to track it back to a particular family or a particular, is it, you just know it came from that era or do you know, like it's lineage out of a particular, I don't even know what the right word would be family or yeah, guild. I don't, I don't even know. <laughs> yeah. That's what's, that's what's fascinating about it. Cause, um, a lot of times you're taking the word of somebody for that part of it. So the provenance. Um, I can tell if it's real, I can tell what period it's from. Um, but like who actually owned it, you start getting into this gray area where, Hey, do I believe the person that's selling it to me? And do I believe this, um, whether it be a dealer or where, whether it be actually dealing directly with a family. Right. So kind of, yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's one of the reasons that the, uh, the blockchain is so appealing, um, because of the ability to actually really track the provenance on something and not have to, uh, you know, maybe put a lot of trust in people that you don't know or don't have any kind of history with. And I mean, that's kind of the story of that whole market is there's a lot of, uh, trust and attribution that you have to just, you know, trust because it maybe it benefits you in some way. Gotcha. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. That seems like a really good segue there. I mean, you and I were both roughly, you know, same age and, um, had backgrounds, obviously a long time doing stuff in the IRL world before this tech was even uh, in, envisioned by, uh, you know, but, but for, with Bitcoin and then Vitalik launching Ethereum, we, we, this stuff wasn't even there. Right. So take me through your transition into this world. When were you red pilled by digital ownership? How did that happen? Um, can you think back to what it was? Where, where were you when that red pilling happened? Like what, what led you down the web three road? Well, it's funny because um, I'm always fascinated and I follow technology definitely very closely. And so um, I bought Bitcoin. The first the first Bitcoin I bought was, I can't remember now if it was $2 or $4. And um, I bought 2,000 of them. Now, not quite enough for a pizza. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. I It was kind of crazy because... Um, where I'm from, the the Domino's, the guy that owns all the Domino um, uh, franchises for this whole region, he was a huge Bitcoin guy, and he loved like he loved he loved Bitcoin, and so he was one of the guys. I um, was involved in a um, this barter like company that's like uh, we used to do these crazy like all kinds of trading, um, real estate. I mean, everything you can imagine, literally I've been, um, there where it's been traded and this Domino's guy was, got involved in that. And he would like take, he would take Bitcoin for pizza. And I probably, I don't know how many hundreds of Bitcoin, um, I spent buying pizzas and like, I was the coolest thing in the world. Really? I was just making the old Bitcoin pizza joke. I didn't have any idea oh. that you were really buying pizza with your Bitcoin. Oh yeah. This guy. And you know, I've lost uh, track of him over time. I've been thinking about looking him up because like he literally, I can't, I don't even know how much Bitcoin he took in from selling pizzas. Um, but unfortunately my Bitcoin, I mean, for, unfortunately, fortunately, I was always like, I would buy it. Then I would like spend some of it. I bought all kinds of stuff, um, with Bitcoin. Um, and I would, uh, sell it, trade it, whatever. And I remember one time I had bought, um, I'd buy like a thousand or 2000 Bitcoin cause I did it all the time. I bought it and I, um, I ended up buying 60 ounces of physical gold from a dealer in Oklahoma and, um, with Bitcoin. And I thought I would like, I thought it was like the coolest thing ever. Cause the gold was worth like 65,000 bucks. And I had like, you know, a few thousand dollars in the Bitcoin and it was like, man, the biggest score ever. Of course, like, you know, it's, I missed by a few tens of millions on it. Um, hindsight's undefeated investor. But, but yeah, but I, I played with crypto from the very beginning, um, you know, with ETH when it was $15, 
unfortunately i never really put it back and just saved it um maybe a little bit of it but i didn't like it i don't have any kind of like massive wealth off of crypto and um but i had the opportunity because i had the crypto um multiple times and i just i would just played with it because it was it was fun and right. i i, I love the technology i love the way it works i just had a lot of fun with it my life threw away um uh I put one time I put the private key for a um, wallet. Somebody's going to find it someday and probably at some point understand what it means. But I wrote it out on a thing and I put it in a piggy bank that I had from when I was a kid. Oh my. I'd had it like my entire life. I put it in the thing. Um, it had all, a huge amount of um, Bitcoin. And I put it in the thing and it, Three years like later, I saw a thing. Bitcoin was like exploding. I was like, oh, well, I've got a lot of that. And I went looking for that piggy bank and it was long gone. My wife had um, donated it to some charity. Holy moly. So somebody probably bought that thing for 50 cents at some store somewhere. And there's a 50 or $100 million sitting inside of it. Oh my gosh. That's insane. 50 yeah. to a hundred million dollar piggy bank is Do you have any pictures of that piggy bank? I don't, but I remember it. <laughs> I, I remember exactly what it looks like. Got a police sketch of that thing and started asking if anybody in your area has bought that piggy bank. They might not know why. Just say it's a family heirloom. I will <laughs> like trying to get somebody to recognize where that thing is. Holy cow. I've heard stories about them going into landfills and looking for like old computers that where somebody was like, well, I had a computer and I threw it away. It went in that landfill and they're out there trying to, I don't know if anybody's ever successfully uh, recovered one like that with a similar story where it's just got tons of Bitcoin sitting in it. So, man, that's crazy. I, I, I mean, I think I, there's a lot of that out there actually. Yeah, I mean, Daryl, I would take some effort to find that gum. I would run an ad locally or something. If it's in your area, maybe somebody just says, yeah, I did buy a piggy bank and you could just say, $5,000 reward and maybe somebody comes forward with that. Huh? Yeah. I've never even considered that. I'll have to think yeah. of, I made I'd the, take a shot. I'd take a shot at it. Um, all right. So, so that, so that's, that's all amazing. I mean, that, that piggy bank is crazy. Um, so what about NFTs particularly? Do you remember your first NFT or NFTs and what were they? What made you, what made you buy them? And then, um, and then take us, down that road a little bit as, as an NFT collector, where have you kind of gone with that since you moved into the, the more uh, non-fungible side? Yeah, so the NFTs were interesting. Um, we, literally, we went into NFTs looking at the technology side of it. Um, my partners and I kind of approached it to look at what the, we were looking um, uh, in the Web2 world, um, I'm a partner in a, in a big, um, online ticketing company. So we sell uh, vet tickets and um, we went looking to see if the technology could be used for ticketing and like at what stage it is. And, and we realized that yes, it absolutely can be used for it, but it's early. It's way, way early for it, I think at this point, but the technology is there, which is really exciting because I, I believe it's going to shake up um, that entire industry. And, uh, hopefully, you know, we're hoping to be prepared for that when it happens. Um, we also, as we started into this space with NFTs, we started seeing, obviously the first thing you realize if you're looking at it objectively is there's huge liquidity problems. Um, everybody wants to buy everything, but they only have so much money. And so there's just like flipping stuff nonstop to get liquidity to buy something else. So then going back and trying to buy what they, and so we started looking at solutions for the liquidity issues um, and we came up with some pretty interesting things. We filed patents for it. We started work on that. But um, again, when we really got down to the nuts and bolts of it, we realized that we're early too early for what we were looking at doing, which was being able to infuse capital um at a level to where we could literally backstop up the entire project um we could provide um continuous escape liquidity or um 
temporary liquidity um, to anyone that's in a project. So, you know, and I still, we still believe that that is the future. You know, whatever I have it as far as in collections, let's say I have a, a registry set and um, it could be one of the top registry sets in the world of like numismatics, which is something that I'm really big into. And I do have like top registry sets and numismatics. But if I walk into my local bank and I say, hey, look, I have this collection of coins um, and I need to borrow some money against it. Now, if I have a great relationship with the bank, they may like say, okay, yeah, we'll do something with you. But for the most part, they don't want to. And a normal person just walks into the bank and says, I have these coins. It doesn't matter what they say they're worth or whatever. There's just no mechanism in place to take that as a right. Yeah, they're lending on your name. More yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so um, what we see, and I still believe, and that's what's going to be like the biggest real thing for the collectible market, the entire collectible market, is that a collector can collect and you can use that collection and what you're doing as basically instant collateral and so you can get liquidity for whatever you need and it's going to change the way collecting's done right now um and that's one of the things i love about block packs because i think you guys are leading the way in showing how physical collectibles can be tokenized and how ownership can be you know provided via a token and I, and I love the vaulting thing anyway, so I've always been a huge fan of that concept. Um, when you're collecting physically, I mean, for me, always space has been an issue. Like, you run out of space. Like, there's yeah. only so much space you can have. And so it's one of the things I love about blockbacks. It's one of the things that drew me there. And so early on, um, I heard something about blockbacks and I went and checked it out and, um, you know, it was before any of the first drops, I think it was like right after the first show where you kind of announced what you were going to be working on. And it just pushed, like, it just like checked a bunch of boxes for me. And, um, so I've had a, I've had a wonderful time, you know, being part of that, um, community and following along and, and, and watching what you guys are doing, because I, I believe you're pioneering something, um, it's going to be, it's going to be the future of collectibles. Um, and you're right there at the, you're, you're leading the way. So awesome. Really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, glad we, glad we found, glad you found your way into our ecosystem. You've been a great, a great participant, one of the leaders in our ecosystem. And that's, uh, that, that it's the community and, and everything is, is really only as good as those that are, that are in it. And you're definitely, you've been there and that's, that's awesome. The, um, one of the things that I'm a little bit surprised by is that here we sit, closing in on two years since our original launch and us originally tokenizing, you know, the alpha tokens for the, those first 10 cards that we put in the very first drop. Um, those were the first real collectibles tokenized in that way. And I, if you would have told me that two years later, there wouldn't be more ubiquitous vaulting solutions. Like I really expected by this time, we would be pulling things out of Beckett's vault and out of PSA's vault and, and that, that there would just be a whole, you know, host of companies that would hold and tokenize. And it just, it, we still haven't gotten there yet, but I agree with you that I think that is, it's just so much better. And, um, and it's a, it's a piece of our business for sure. And we've got a lot of other things that we're, we're looking to do and we'll be growing that with the auctions and stuff that'll be starting, but I'm, I'm still expecting a lot of other entrants to come into that space and then people that will be experts in, I mean, this could replace the entire freeporting of art, I would think, right? I mean, you're an art guy. Like, how does, like, does that not, does that not make that process like a hundred times more efficient if, if, if instead of the works being just held in a ledger, if they're, they're tokenized and, and put out that way, wouldn't that be an obvious solution for that market, which is just massive sums of money? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So the, um, yeah, the opportunity there is, it's so immense and it's just a matter it's basically like i think what blockbacks has been doing so you do such a good job of it but educating people so it's just a matter of helping someone that doesn't understand it be able to understand it and that's i mean that's where we're at we're so early still 
people don't understand what's there yet, but the the benefit that is there is so huge that once it becomes understood, I mean, it's, it has to go there um, because it's just so much more efficient and it's just so much easier. Um, and efficiency in the end always wins. Yep, I agree with that. So we, I could geek out a couple of different directions, but you've got a couple of things that I wanted to hit on. Um, I guess we could make, let's start with this one. So I happen to know a little bit about something that you're into back at, back home with a, a certain museum or that you that you may be a part of and some of the collectibles and artifacts that are in that. Would you mind just giving me and our listeners a, a bit of a backstory about that? Because when you first told me that, I mean, I, you, we were on the phone and I just, we were trying to wrap up the call and somehow that came up and I wouldn't even let you off the phone. I'm just like, wait, what? What do you have? You have what? <laughs> and like, it was, I was so geeked out by it. Yeah, so um, it's kind of, it's kind of fun. So obviously I love collecting and I collect, um, I collect a whole huge variety of things. And um, at the same time, um, non-Web2, we got into a few years ago, I guess, well, long, 10 or 12 years ago now, um, we built an attraction. And the attraction was kind of like an outlet. It was just a, it was something to do for you know, to like stay creative and, um, it was fun. We had a huge fun time with it. We brought in a new partner into that, um, uh, arrangement. And then we started building attractions and we built uh, quite a few attractions. And then the partner, um, Emma, who is, uh, also a partner in Meta Jungle. One day she had this idea and, and so we, we built these attractions out and, um, we sold quite a few of them. So we, when you, sold, say, attra- when you say attractions, what, 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 what do you mean? So like the first one we built was a, um, was a actual, um, it was an eco, uh, tour. So a zipline eco tour and, um, it, I, went around the world to all these different places that had eco tours and they had zip lines. And it was before anyone really knew what they were. There was, um, two in North America, one in Hawaii and one in Alaska. Um, and I did the one in Alaska. I was up there for a bear hunt actually with my son, my 13 year old son. We went and did this, uh, this, um, zip line. Amazing. Blew me away people there blew me away. Um, came back, told my partner, we ought to do something fun. Let's put one of these in. And he is like, hell you're crazy. No way. So I started researching them. He, a year later was somewhere and he did one and he came back. It's like, let's do, let's do this. I bought, I put a piece of property in a contract. Um, I think two hours after he told me we should do this. Um, incredible piece of property on a highway. 10 million people a year drive by it and, um, had perfect vision where you could see parts of it, but most of it's hidden, but you can see enough of it. Just enough to tease you. See somebody flying above the trees off the highway. Um, I called a guy in Alaska that put that one in. It was wild. Um, coolest dude ever. He remembered my son and I, we'd been there a year before, asked him if he would be willing to top a plane and come and meet me the next day and look at this property. And he did. He was cool. He did. Came in. Um, really fun experience because it was like something brand new. He was like literally cutting edge because he put the second one in North America. But um they ended up like, you know, this whole industry grew around that whole thing. And um his wife and his wife became the president of the association that like sets the rules, does the regulations for it, you know, from the government side, like, and it was just fun because we kind of grew in this whole thing together. Um, I hired him and his wife to, um, consult and told him all this crazy stuff we're going to do. We're going to build the biggest, the best the world's ever seen. We're going to be able to do volume that no one's ever seen before. Um, and we did it and it was freaking cool and we got hooked on the adrenaline from being able to do that sort of thing and so we started doing attractions and that was the first one 
That one was insanely successful. Um, we built another zip line across a lake that goes into a um, into a, like a shopping and dining entertainment area that has you know five million visitors each year, and that one was like literally almost like I mean it sounds crazy, but it's almost like having a printer that prints money, and but learned a huge amount from it and just the coolness of it all. Um, so we got where we were having fun with that. And then Emma, who was running it all, she came up with this idea one day because I'd got really heavily into numismatics. I was collecting numismatics. I was building registry sets. And um, you're competing to get the number one set. You're buying the best, you know, coins that you absolutely can to get the number one set. And I have like, in uh, 2016, I had the best classic uh, set. So overall set, best classic set worldwide by one of the main um, companies. It was freaking cool. It was fun. And it was really fun because when I started it, it was because I was interested in some. I started buying a few and some guy contacts me really randomly and says, hey, I hear you're buying some of this. And I said, yeah, I am. And he's like, well, I'm the... I have the number one registry set for that. I'm just going to tell you, you probably should move on to something else because this stuff is super hard to get. And, um, you know, there's no way you can compete with me. So you took that as a challenge, I guess. I took it as a direct challenge. Yeah. And I took that personally, says Michael Jordan. Yes. And the two years after that, I had the number one set, um, which he'd had for like 15 years or whatever, however long they've been doing them. He'd had the set and I, I like smoked him. And it was very fulfilling to me because he was such a douche. Like, I don't know who would ever say that to somebody, but nice. <laughs> um, so I always try to support people that contact me like, Hey, and they're, I'm building this. I'm like, yeah, right. yeah. Um, I'll help you do it. Like, it's cool. It's yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, stay off my lawn. This is my area. That's, that's not gonna, that wouldn't sit well with me either. Yeah. So anyway, the name of the back part was fun. I got into it. I started building different sets, having fun somehow kind of stumbled into shipwreck and to the it's really intriguing because it's its own complete area um in the numismatics and there's so much more than numismatics and shipwreck because you've got there's so many things that have went down and ships and became really interested and intrigued by it and so anyway my partner emma she met somebody um that was from uh odyssey marine which is like the largest um shipwreck recovery company yep. they they do all the really crazy deep water stuff you know discovery national geographic all those specials you see them going down in subs and doing these crazy recoveries and it was wild she um set up a meeting with them in uh tampa we flew down went in we had an hour scheduled, I think, for a meeting. We walked in and we sat down with these people and they were so passionate about what they do. And we had so much fun. They took us into this very private secret area where they are working on all this stuff that they've recovered and they have their own private collection. And um, yeah, I mean, I would say I geeked out for sure. I was just in awe. and. We hit it off. We ended up spending a couple of days with them instead of one hour. Oh, wow. And, um, uh, when it was done, we ended up, yeah, we ended up buying their entire private collection and, um, it was really fun. Um, it was, it was, so you bought, you, you bought their entire collection. Yeah. At that time we bought, so we bought their private collection. So everything mm -hmm. that they'd held back. Um, and it was wild because there were things in there that's like, from a collector standpoint, it's like wild. I love walk somebody in there and say, Hey, tell me what you think the most valuable piece in here is. And, you know, go through it. And when you're done, just tell me what you think it is. You know, they always come back. Oh, it's this, there's this bar of, um, an 80 pound bar. That's, um, electrum, electrum, which is, um, about, 85, 86% silver and 14% gold. And so you think, oh, well, that's like, that's got to be worth a crap load of money. 
Um, and it is, it's like, it's really valuable and it's obvious. It's actually that bar actually is really rare. It's the only one known to exist. Um, wow. of that is a Bombay bar that really rare, really rare stuff. But there is this thing called an astrolog that's in there and you could just walk right by it, but it's a navigational instrument and they, um, I guess in the Arabian world, it's how they navigated for a long time. And there's only a hundred astrolobes or something like that known to exist the entire world. And they're all in like major museums like Smithsonian or whatever. And, um, they sell at auction. Like one has a sold at auction for a long, long time, but the last one that sold at auction sold for millions of dollars that went to a, um, institution. And we just have one because they had recovered three of them out of a, um, a ship that had went down in the 1400s. And um, that's crazy. They sold two of them to help finance the project and they kept the best one. And we have it and it's just sitting there and people walk by it. They don't know. No one's like, holy crap, if I had a crowbar and a um, like sledgehammer right now, I could be like crazy rich from this piece. But it's just sitting and it's so fun. I love it. I mean, it's just like, it's fun. So I just, I just pulled it up to cut it. I wanted to see what one looked like. And I, yeah, it's, it's just like, it looks like it almost, it's, I guess, similar to a compass. Does it predate the compass or I didn't yeah. actually read about it. It definitely predates. It's like the, one of the earliest forms of a navigation instrument. So oh. yeah, I have no idea how it works. So I couldn't use one by any means, but, um, it's just, yeah. it's just cool. It's fun. And, um, yeah, we just have a lot of fun with it. And so we built out an entire museum. Um, we put it in a, a really busy, high traffic tourist area. It's kind of weird because it's in the middle of the country, so it's not near um, a uh, a coast. But we have people that are like really serious about shipwrecks and really serious about um, artifacts because we have some of the best artifacts that have ever came out of shipwrecks. Um, some of the rarest things. Um, so people will come to visit it. And then obviously tons of tourists and people just walk by cause it's curious and interesting and they walk in and it probably adds a little bit of, um, I like to think it adds something to them just knowing it and learning about it. And you just start seeing that, Hey, there's so many things that you don't know about that are just like crazy cool and crazy cool stories and yep it's really it's fun that's the kind of stuff i mean i don't know anything about it but that's the kind of stuff that i could literally sit there and read the tags on those until my family drags me out of a place like that where so yeah so that's all super cool and that's the kind of stuff like i could geek out on that um all day i could walk into that and just read every tag on everything that you've got in there and be I and mean, my family would want to drag me out because they'd be bored to tears probably but when you first told me about that and uh, I, first place my mind went as a casual observer of this stuff was the Titanic. And you said you, you, you told me you do have some stuff from the Titanic. And while that may not be the most rare or the coolest thing in there, I think that's for the lay person that doesn't know anything, that's like kind of iconic and amazing. What, what Titanic items do you have? Hmm, that's a great question. <laughs> I do have Titanic items. I don't know off the top of my head. Really? Yeah. Gotcha. I mean, yeah. Yeah, have a lot of stuff. And so um, Emma could tell you exactly what all of it is and talk about it. I don't know, because the Titanic doesn't, the Titanic doesn't excite me that much. So we um, literally bought Titanic items, real Titanic items, in order to be literally just to have it as part of, because it's something that people know and think about. Right. For sure. But it's not not really what I get excited about, so I didn't, pay a whole lot of attention to what we've got gotcha. see where, we, where we're at there's there's titanic museums around the um country right and it's one of the interesting things um to me so like a lot of times you go into these things like a, these attraction museums and the stuff in the museum isn't real everything is reproductions it's all like um it's like a reproduction of what was real and there's a lot of reasons for it. One of the main reasons is like just the expense of the, the value of all the things. Um, it's just immense. And then 
being able to put it into a whole bunch of different locations is also impossible. You've got, you know, there's only a handful or one of these things you can't put it in all these different places. Right. And so when most of the time you walk into one of those places, what you're actually looking at is just a really good copy of something that was real. And, um, the difference is for us and for me, and what's exciting to me is you walk in here, every single thing you're looking at is real. And, um, there's things that you can look at that you'll never see anywhere else. In fact, things that I had never seen, um, because up until, um, up until we walked into that hidden secret area <laughs> that they had, where they had this lab going, no one had seen some of the stuff. Um, for instance, they had done a, a shipwreck. It's called the SS Republic. And in the um, numismatic world, it's really famous because there was a ton of important coinage that came off of that ship. But the ship was a supply ship and it was taking, well, it's a money supply ship, but it was, it was taking money to New Orleans to be able to rebuild New Orleans just immediately after the end of the Civil War. And so it had this huge amount of a bullion on it that was going back, that was going to be used to help rebuild New Orleans. And the ship went down. And um, there's all these things that came off of that ship. And some of it had never been seen before because the ship went down, I think, in 17,000 feet of water. So 17,000 feet deep. And Odyssey found it and they recovered it. Well, there was all this food on the ship. So there's bottles, sealed bottles of food, like gooseberries and like all these different things, beer, and it's all sealed. And it was 17,000 feet deep in this crazy cold water and it's perfectly preserved. And we walk into this, into their, into their lab and just see like these glass cases with all this stuff. And it's like, what is this? And like, yeah, it's perfectly preserved. And we've had like some of it tested, like you could eat it right now. Like you could open that jar up and eat it. And it's from just basically perfectly refrigerated down there. Yeah. yeah. And it was just so cool. And we we're like, so excited. We we're like, why is no one, why have I never seen this or known this? And they're like, yeah, it's just like, it's too hard. We can't like, you know, no one knows about it. It has to be kept someplace where it's cared for and all this. And, um, yeah, we put it into a, a attraction, a museum and, um, we, it's just cool because like, you can't go anywhere else, like anywhere in the entire world and see that, like see something that went down in a ship 150 years ago that you could eat today. Just wow. kind of crazy. We're just getting started with the pod, but I mean, this is plug the, what's the name of the attraction? Where is it? How can people go visit it? I mean, people might be here listening to this. and like, God, I want to go. I mean, I want to go see it. Like where, where, where is it? And what's the name? It's shipwrecked treasure museum in um, Branson, Missouri. Okay. And so, awesome. yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. One of the cool other cool things about that uh, ship is You've heard of trench art. Are you familiar with that at all? Trench art. It's like a. To where they graph the bottom? Well, yeah. Well, trench art was started where everyone, the story, everyone believes trench art started um, the Civil War, or not Civil War, in the World War One, in the trenches. The soldiers would be down there for so long they would get bored and they started. Oh, no, I was taking a totally different direction. No, yeah. They would start, they started like, they would carve shells. So they would take artillery shells, they would carve them into, um, really beautiful ornate artwork. Um, in fact, I've collected some of that cause it's just amazing. And then they also would take coins and they would carve these coins out. And so they would change what the coin was. And so one of the really like common trench art things is they would take like seated Liberty coins and they would, they would carve an elaborate toilet seat onto it to where it looks like lady Liberty is sitting on the toilet. And it's all this stuff. And so it's like kind of a real known, you know, thing. And, and the belief always was that trench art began 
in World War One, And there was people that had a theory that, no, it really started in the Civil War, but it wasn't provable. No one knew. Well, when they did this recovery in the SS Republic, there were a whole um, huge thing of um, coins. So they're all, you know, coins from the 1850s and 1860s that have been carved that were trench art. And because of like, you know, the various laws, all these things that happened, it all disappeared until they recovered that ship. It was not known or provable that there was trench art before world war one. And it was like, they brought up this whole slew of these coins that had been, um, carved during the civil war. And it was just amazing. Cause it's like changes history. Right. It like rewrites it. And so there's this whole new thing. And so it was kind of cool because we got, we have that entire collection. We bought the entire collection of trench art coins that were done during the civil war. That's, that's amazing to think about it's those just, soldiers sitting there doing that. And it's yeah, just, they whittle on those coins and they, they make their own art out of it. And really that cool. would fall squarely into numismatics from a collectible standpoint we, it's the coin but it's also art because numismatics for like i this for everybody to know like i'm not pretending to be an expert on this alpha's the expert i'm just i'm just kind of guy i i know a little bit about some roman era coins and that's about it and so like paper i don't really know much about paper currencies but would that still fall under something that a numismatic collector would be interested in or is that more an art piece or like how do you view it <laughs> Yeah, what's interesting from a collector standpoint, there would be some numismatic interest in it, um, but most numismatic collectors are purists, so you don't want something that's been altered. You want, you know, perfect. It's like kind of what I was thinking. As high, close high grade, best best copy you can get. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As close to perfect as you can get. Um, but there is still like uh, I'd say a subgenre of people within the numismatic world that would have definite interest in that. But um, there's a enormous amount of collectors of, you know, civil war, um, era things that are very, very interested in that sort of thing. And then just the idea of folk art and people that collect folk art, then it's a huge thing for them. And so there's definitely a, a, a whole swath of people that are collecting folk art and then they're collecting, um, trench art, which is kind of a, an offshoot of that because it's something that people are doing just to uh, kill time and try to distract them. This, this is all so fascinating. This is next level geeking here. I'm sure most listeners have never heard of a lot of this. Like when you said trench art, I thought you were talking about like, cause we were still talking about shipwrecks and Odyssey. I thought they were talking about like literally like mapping the trenches. <laughs> oh yeah. You know where the shipwrecks were. I was totally like not even on the right plane there. Um, so, I'm trying to keep these, I, we could, we could talk about this for literal hours, but i um, trying to keep the pod around in hours. And I do want to hit on your collecting in web three. Um, obviously you're, I know that you're into art and I know you're big into photography and some other things. Maybe, maybe just tell folks a little bit about your overall collecting thesis. What are you, what are you doing in web three? Like, what are you really interested in? And um, in, in the, in the, in the, the more uh, artistic NFT world. So yeah, in the fine art world, um, I definitely tend towards uh, photography and it's because I think that web three, you know, all the benefits that web three has, um, you know, it benefits all different genres and all different art forms. But I believe that photography, there's like an actual extra benefit to photography and it gives photographers and photography, um, almost the ability to um, carve out a very special, um, unique place in the fine art world that it's always struggling to have. Um, there's there's obviously in the fine art world, there are very well-known photographers and they are, um, you know, their photography sells for large amounts of money. There's photographers that are selling, um, you know, photographs for a hundred, thousand plus dollars but a lot of times in the photography world in the physical world everything's done with additions 
And so because of that, there's a cap on what photography can be. So, you know, you can see a piece of fine art sell at one of the auction houses for a hundred million dollars or, or more than that even, but you're never going to see a photograph selling for that. Photographs have like a ceiling on what the fine art world believes that you can sell a photograph for work for in web three, you have all of these photographs that are being released as one of ones. And the one of one part really excites me for photography because it's completely different than what the physical world is. And that one of one removes the ceiling. So it changes what you can potentially get for something. And by removing any ceilings, um, I think you create way bigger opportunities. And it's verifiable that that is the only one. Yeah, absolutely verifiable. And so that really excites me. Um, and that's why I, I collect photography. I, I love photography um, as an art form when it's art. And um, it excites me for what the future can be for it. And I'm, I'm seeing like a whole new, I don't know, kind of a whole new world op of opportunity open for this entire art form. And, um, I love being part of it. And so I seriously, I, I mean, I, I take my collecting in that world pretty seriously and, um, oh, I know you do. <laughs> I, know I definitely, you do. I definitely collect, um, with value in mind. So I'm collecting what I believe, um, not only has value today, but is going to stand the test of time and will have long-term value. So, you know, my estate, my kids, my family, you know, I believe that I'm not risking their money. I'm investing, you know, I'm investing in their, in their long-term future. And so. And I know some of the things you buy, cause I've, I've seen some of the stuff I've stalked your wallet a little bit. Cause I'm, I'm interested in, in some of it. So, I mean, I have a little bit of photography. I know Trey Ratcliffe, um, and so I collect his 1K, 1K project where he, his, it's almost like a book with the art. He did a really interesting thing with that. I, got, I need to have him on the pod at some point, but the, um, but I've looked at some of the other stuff and it's not, not everything you've got some stuff that's super expensive, but not everything you buy is super expensive. So I've tried to look, it's like, all right, why did alpha key in on this? Is it sometimes you just see something and you're like, man, I, I really like it. Or is it that the artist is doing something that you think is gonna, that it's early in their career and you're maybe betting on their career or then like maybe just real quick, take us through maybe what goes through your mind with what I would classify maybe more as like the undiscovered artist, not just an Aversano, like the guy whose piece you can buy for 0.1 or 0.2 ETH. Like, what are you looking for in those? So I look at what they're doing, um, like overall from an art, from an art perspective. So I look and see, okay, what are they doing, um, in the space? And, um, do they seem to have an understanding of like, of, do they have an understanding of what art is to have an understanding as far as what drives value, what, what is, um, what makes something valuable, what makes a photo more than a photo, what makes it into a piece of fine art? Um, is it something that is like creative? Is there something that's especially aesthetically appealing about it. Um, and then I use all of those things and decide whether it's something that I am going to basically, you know, invest in it. Cause that's what it is when you're collecting something, you're, you're investing in it. And, um, when you get to a certain level, like, you know, early on for maybe the first hundred or 200 pieces I bought, I can say, oh, I'm just buying it cause I like it. It's a real easy excuse. You just, oh, I, buy, I like it. I'll buy it. We get to a point where, hell, if you, you know, if you looked at one piece every day, it'd take you years to actually look at pieces. So you don't, you don't buy it just cause you like it. There has to be other reasons that you're buying it. And I definitely got to that fairly quickly in web three because you know, the, the volume of what you can do to start stacking up. And so. I definitely buy with a purpose. And so when I'm buying something now, it's definitely because I a hundred percent believe 
in the potential of that to have long-term value. Some of the pieces I know, if I'm paying a lot for a piece, it's because I already know the values there. The value exists in the traditional and the physical world. And um, it's really safe. When I spend a lot for something, when I'm spending a lot for it, it's safe. When I take the risk, it's when I'm spending little for something. When I'm, when I'm buying smaller uh, priced items. But when I take those risks, I still take them pretty seriously because right. um, I'm, I'm, I'm investing in what I think is going to be um, sustainable and, and, and a piece of art and an artist that's going to do really well in the future. So do you, um, do you have a way right now that you're displaying? Cause I, I, it's one of the things that I'm struggling with right now. I know Zarek from our community. Um, he just bought several token frames, seems happy. I was looking at token frames. I might end up grabbing some of those. I, I have some stuff that I've done prints of NFTs, but I'm not displaying anything yet in a digital format. Have you done that at all? Any recommendations there? Um, I have, but I've not bought frames. Um, I just use big TVs and so they work fine. In fact, they work really good. Um, so in fact that we just put a whole bunch of TVs throughout our entire office. And so we have NFTs rotating on the end of rotation. That's cool. And I, I really believe that that's the future. I mean, I believe that eventually frames are going to come down to where price wise. Yeah. They're hot. They're high. Like the nice token frame ones, they are pricey. Yeah. They're very pricey. And, um, I mean, I think it's just like TVs used to be. And, you know, when, when the flat screen TVs came out years ago, and I remember the first one I bought, it was like 8000 bucks, And I thought, wow, this is amazing. But, you know, I could buy one three times as big and um, way more flat for, uh, you know, a fraction of that price now. And I think that those frames will be the same thing, same way. But right now, it's just TVs that works great. And so um, I do that. You know, I do that quite a bit and I've had an entire, um, 3d world of galleries built out. Um, I've had that done and then I've wrestled like since beginning that project of starting that to like, even right now, I don't know if I'll ever release it or not. So I don't know if I'll ever release it and share it with the public. So it's a gallery of your collection or it's a platform for, for, for other people to put like, I built it as a platform. So, and then I use my collection as the, um, you know, kind of the, the demo of the platform where you can walk into all these different spaces and rooms and different things in the metaverse so you can like see all of it. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I wrestle with it. Like. I don't know if we'll, I don't know if I'll ever let the public see it or not. That's interesting. Maybe we'll, one day we'll get a peek at that. So, Dale, I appreciate you coming on. We're right at the hour. And uh, again, I, it's the hardest part. One of the hardest things for me on this pod is trying to hold us to round about the right time here. The, um, I, I tell you what, I'd love to do at some point. At some point, we're going to move to where we'll actually do these on video and not just audio. When we go video, I want to come on the road to the, uh, the Maritime Museum and I want to see some awesome stuff and I want to, I want to get the, uh, what was the what was the compass thing called again? Astrolab. Astrolab. Yeah. Yeah. So that, I want to see that firsthand and get that on the pod in video form. So it's just really fascinating stuff. Uh, it's not something that I have a whole lot of knowledge about, but I've, I've really enjoyed hearing about it. I, I look to maybe explore it again more. I'm going to go to the website some more and dig around and just I'm, I get real geeked out on that stuff. So thanks so much for joining us. And uh, until next time, everybody, keep geeking out. That's a wrap. Thank you for listening to another episode of Geeking Out, the podcast for collectors. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button to stay up to date on all things related to collecting. Remember, new episodes are coming every week. So until next time, keep geeking out.